Good evening. It is good to see everyone here tonight. It's good to be together on the Lord's Day and to continue our worship together. I was thinking as Gary was leading singing, he was working to keep the pace up. And after you have led singing, you look at that a little bit differently. And I appreciate him trying to keep the pace going. And I was thinking Wednesday night, I was trying really hard to keep things moving along. And if the congregation drags, that is difficult for the song leader. But you don't realize that until you are the song leader. So I appreciate uh, Gary doing that. appreciate the well-thought-out prayer by Richard tonight. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29, the Apostle Paul said this, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good unto edifying. The word edifying there means to build up. Don't, take, don't speak corrupt speech which tears down, but speak words which build up. He says that, that you may render grace to every man. I don't remember when I first began learning bad words. Of course, at my house, my parents didn't use that kind of language, and so I didn't know those words. But I remember when I started public school and I was in first grade, I remember being at the bus stop, and I remember that uh, one of the other students at the bus stop said to me, he said, would you like to learn how to curse? Well, I didn't know what that meant. What he meant is, would you like to learn some cuss words? Well, I had no idea, and I said, sure. And so he said, repeat after me. And so I learned these words, and uh, incidentally, it wasn't very long until my parents took me off the bus, and I started uh, being driven to school. A preacher friend of mine said that he had something similar that happened to him, he said, of course, they didn't use that kind of language at his house either. In fact, his dad was a gospel preacher. He said he started public school, and he learned a word. In fact, it was a phrase that uh, he really wanted to try out. He didn't know that it was a, a bad word or a bad phrase, but he was really eager. He said his family had gone out to eat, and so he said it was his mom and his dad and his two sisters. And the waitress came over. And she asked everyone what they wanted to eat. And he said it was just the perfect opportunity for this uh, phrase. And so he said he just blurted it out. And he said he did not know that his parents could turn that color of white before. He said their mouths dropped open and they said, what did you just say? Well, it was a learning experience. He did not know. You remember learning bad words. But Christians don't talk that way. Because Colossians chapter 4 and verse 6 says, Let your speech be always with grace and seasoned with salt. To be seasoned with salt, salt is a preservative. Salt brings good things. Salt makes things taste better. When Christians speak, they don't tear down. They don't offend. They do good with their words. Why would people use bad language? Why would people use the Lord's name in vain? Why would people use gutter talk? Why do people talk like that? I think it's because they're immature. You're not paying enough attention to me, and, you know, I'm really upset, and I am really surprised, and I really want to shock you, and I really want you to listen to me, and so I'm going to talk this way. And sometimes for kids, there's a real temptation to use bad words because it gives them kind of an, an instant status. You know, if I use adult words, then it shows I'm an adult, right? Of course, that's wrong. What it really shows, whether you're young or old, is that you really don't have a good handle on the English language, and you really don't know how to express yourself, and it really shows that you don't care enough about other people that you don't mind offending them with your words. 
Well, Christians don't do that. Christians don't seek to offend with their words. They want their speech to be always with grace and seasoned with salt. You know, sometimes little children will learn bad words and they'll say it and it seems amusing to hear it come out of the mouth of a little child and, and people will laugh. But you know what happens when you laugh when a child says a bad word? Well, they learn, they'll say it again because they got a positive response. And the more that we laugh, the more they're going to do it. So, so don't laugh. Don't, don't do that. I want to teach you some four-letter words tonight. Normally, when we think of four-letter words, we think of bad words. And I guess it's just coincidental that so many bad words are spelled with four letters. I don't think there's anything behind that except coincidence. But I want to give you some four-letter words tonight that we need to teach our children. Six words tonight that we need to teach our family, our kids, especially if you've got little kids, you need to teach these to your children. You want to hear some adult language? Here we go. Here's the first word tonight. It is W-O-R-K, work. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15, in the Garden of Eden, before sin ever entered this world, God put Adam and Eve in the garden and he says to them, he says, you see the garden? I want you to tend it. I want you to dress it. I want you to keep it. I think a lot of people don't realize that work existed prior to sin. They think that work was punishment for sin. But of course, as a result of their sin, the Lord said, you're going to work by the sweat of your brow. There are going to be thorns and briars and thistles. It's going to be difficult. But work is a good thing. Work has always been here. Work is something we need to be involved in. But Genesis chapter 3 and verse 19, after their sin, the Lord said work is going to be hard. It is going to be very difficult. But there's never been disgrace attached to work. I mean, work has always been a good thing. In John chapter 9 and verse 4, Jesus said, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day, for the night cometh when no man can work. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58 says, Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, Paul gets really personal with this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 10 because he says this, Now we command you that if a man will not work, neither should he eat. You see, Paul said, we do something that's wrong. If you've got a lazy man and he doesn't want to work and we just feed him anyway, that's, that's a wrong thing. Now somebody says, well, that seems cruel. That seems wrong. That, that's harsh. That's a hard thing. But he says... It's a wrong thing to feed him if he's lazy. Now, he doesn't say if a man can't work. He doesn't say if a man is crippled or he's sick. He says if a man won't work. That is, he is lazy. He wants to live off the system. He chooses not to work because he would rather not. The Bible says don't let him eat. Now you say, well, we can't let him starve. We can't let him go without. You know what? He's not going to starve. You know why? Because he will figure this thing out. He will get hungry, and he will go to work. As a matter of fact, we do a great disservice to people when we provide food for people who are lazy. Work is good for self-esteem. Work makes people feel good about themselves. It makes them feel like they have accomplished something. Living off the system is not right, and it's not what God intended. You know, over the years, I have known some Christians... I can think of some that I've known through the years that um, they were drawing military disability kind of because they fudged it through the system. They were perfectly able. In fact, they could, they could play football. They could lift 
350 pounds on the bench press. There was nothing wrong with them, but they were milking the system. A Christian doesn't do that. How about this? 1 Timothy 5 and verse 8, the Bible says, If a man won't provide for his own, especially those of his own house, he has denied the faith and he is worse than, the King James says, an infidel. That is, an unbeliever. Now, what's he mean by that? If a man won't provide for his own, if he won't get a job and work and financially take care of his family, he has denied Christianity and he is worse off than an unbeliever. Why is that? Because even unbelievers take care of their own family. We need to teach our children the four-letter word, W-O-R-K, and that is work. You see, we've got a problem in our society because people today, many of them, feel like they are owed something. They feel like they deserve it. They feel like they are entitled to be supported, and so they don't want to work. They don't want to earn. And I tell you something about the United States of America. We are so materially blessed. I've got the ability sometimes to give some things to my children that maybe my parents couldn't afford to give me at that age. And so the temptation of parents is to say this, well, we have it, so we're going to give it. We love our kids, and so we're going to give these things. But the problem is, it's not always good for kids to have all of these things. Many times, if so much is given, they don't learn to appreciate. They don't learn the value of things and the value of work. We need to make our kids work. And so, son, you need to go mow the grass. But daddy, I don't like to cut the grass. I understand that. Now go cut the grass. Or you tell your daughter, you need to go mop the bathroom. You need to clean the tub. Mom, I hate that job. That's a hard job. I understand that. Now go do it. Now, is that hard? Is that uncaring? No, it's just the opposite of that. And if you don't do a good job, you're going to have to do it again. Why would we abuse our children that way? That's not abuse at all, is it? You're teaching them something important. It is the four-letter word, W-O-R-K, work. In fact, I would say one form of child abuse is giving your children everything that he wants and not making him work for it. All right, here is a second one. G-I-V-E. We need to teach our children to give. Now, of course, God is the ultimate giver. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But you see, there's something about this idea of giving is it's not something that we have instinctively. You're not just born with this. It is something that is learned. It's not like a cold that you catch. It is something that you were taught. And so if you grew up with parents who were benevolent and giving, then you might have learned to give through them. It is something that God loves in people. It's a characteristic of Christians. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and verse 7, the Bible says, As a man purposes in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity. Now, pay attention to this. We use it oftentimes at the contribution, but the Lord says something very important here. It's not that God wants me to give because God doesn't need my money. The Lord can do perfectly fine without my money. He's concerned not about my giving. He's concerned about my heart. Listen, he says that he wants me to give not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves, not a giver, God loves a cheerful giver. God is concerned about my heart. I need to teach my children to give and to do it, not because it's an obligation, not because they have to. I need to teach them to love to give. You know, we need to be giving people. 
And we need to teach our children that from a very young age. And so what happens is you've got some children and they begin fighting over a toy. That's the perfect time to sit down and teach them. You need to share that. From that very young age, you're teaching them about sharing and about giving and about being kindness and, and kindness. And we don't help people and give to people because we have to. We teach them because that's the kind of people we are. We teach them that as children of God, we have a loose hold on gold. We care about other people. Here's the third one. L-O-V-E, love. Now, 1 Corinthians 13, we call that the love chapter. And in this chapter, he starts off by telling us it doesn't matter how religious you are if you're not motivated by love. It amounts to nothing. And so he starts this way, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, what's he talking about here? In the first century during that time, they had the ability to miraculously speak in other languages. And some of the Christians thought that this was the best miraculous gift, and it got to the point that they were fighting with each other. There was jealousy over this ability so that they didn't practice love in the church. And so what Paul says is this, though I speak with the tongues of men, that is, if I could speak all the different languages of men, but I don't love my brethren, it amounts to nothing. Though I speak with the tongues of men, and of angels. That is, if I could speak a language of heaven that's not even spoken on this earth, if I don't love my brethren, it's nothing. It's a sounding brass or tinkling cymbal. That is, it's just noise. Though I bestow all of my goods to feed the poor, if I give up everything I have and I don't love the brethren, it is nothing. And though I make the ultimate sacrifice, though I give my body to be burned and I don't love the brethren, he says, it is for nothing. You see, God wants us to love each other. He wants us to do things in His service because of love. You know, it doesn't matter how many times you come to worship if you don't love the Lord. We need to teach our children you come to worship not because you have to, but because you love the Lord. Luke chapter 10 and verse 27, the Bible teaches that I am to love God, and that is the motivation. I don't come to services because of what people will think of me. I come because I love God. And I want my children to come because they love God. And that's what I'm trying to instill in them from a very young age. I love the Lord. Secondly, that I love the brethren. John chapter 13 and verse 34, Jesus said, This is a commandment. This is a new commandment that I give to you, that you love one another. Now, that was a commandment in the Old Testament. What is the new commandment Jesus is giving? He says, this is a new commandment that I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Have you ever thought about how easy it is to get along with someone who loves God and loves his brethren? If there's someone like that who loves God and he loves his brethren, that person's easy to love. That person is easy to get along with. But you take somebody who's kind of weak in his love for God, or he's weak in his love for brethren, he's going to have trouble. Incidentally, a loving your brethren involves teaching your children how to be agreeable. You know, some people are just ornery. If there is a person who is ornery and he is hard to get along with, you know where he might have learned that from? There's a person I can think of from years ago in another state. This man was just ornery. He was hard to get along with. You know what? His mama was ornery and hard to get along with. 
It might be my children have learned this characteristic from me. I need to teach my kids to love God, to love the brethren. I need to teach them to love their spouse. And I teach them that by the way I act. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25, love your wife. Titus chapter 2 and verse 4, love your husband. There is something that is very interesting. A lot of marriages struggle because children emulate what they saw from their parents. And that's a good thing for us to be thinking about in our homes if we yell at each other, if we mistreat each other. Our children see that and they learn that. I am teaching them not only by what I say, but what I do. I need to teach them to love God, to love brethren, to love the spouse, their spouse. Number four, I need to teach my children to love their enemies. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 45, Jesus said, Bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. Now this is a hard one. You know, sometimes our children might come home and they will say that someone said something ugly to them. And of course, we love our children, and so we begin to attack that person, and we say, ah, you know, we really tear that person apart. We're teaching our children something. Instead, we need to be of the character that we should say to them, you need to pray for that person. You see, we teach them something about loving their enemy. Again, not only by our words, but by our actions. Next. We need to teach the word P-R-A-Y. We need to teach our children to pray. For those of you who were raised in Christian homes, and I don't know what that is. I, I would say maybe 50% of the people in here were maybe raised in a Christian home. But those of you who were raised in a Christian home, can you remember your parents praying? You know, there's a funny thing about children. Children are fascinated by the prayers of their parents. They are very impressed by the kind of words that their mom and daddy use. And they will follow the attitude that their parents use when they pray. And they will take on the same type of posture. If their parents bow their head and fold their hands, the children will bow their head and fold their hands. If they close their eyes, the children will close their eyes. They learn to pray like mama and daddy pray. And I think I can prove that to you because if you will listen to your children, they will pray, or your grandchildren, they will pray about the things that you pray about. They will use the same words that you use because you are making an impression on them. And I know you probably said, well, you said this in sermons before. We've heard you say this multiple times. I thought of something uh, when I was preparing this sermon. Years ago, my daughter Macy, and I can say this because she's not here tonight, but I remember Macy saying... I mentioned some particular sermon. I don't even remember what the sermon was. But she said something like, Dad, I have heard you preach that sermon so many times. I will scream if I hear that sermon again. She said, I've got every point memorized. And I said, no, you don't. Let me hear them. And she rattled every point off. And I said, all right, I don't guess I need to preach that sermon. <laughs> but, um, but then it occurred to me, isn't that good? I have said it enough that it's ingrained in her head that she remembers that. Isn't that good when parents teach it to the point that our children remember it? Because when the temptation comes and they're grown and they're on their own, don't you want them to hear mom and daddy's voice echoing in their head? Or the voice of the elders, the voice of the preacher who has said something so many times that it is just uh, emblazoned on their heart so that they will never forget it. 
our children also need to know that we really believe in prayer and that it's not something we just do at church services. You know, sometimes you can go out to eat with people and the food comes and immediately the children just start eating and it, it probably tells you something about what goes on at home. Now, I know kids will be kids and so you can't necessarily say that, but if all the kids just dig in and start eating, it probably means that's what they're used to doing. But if you see the kids sit there or they bow their heads, that probably means that that's what they're used to doing. And that's what they've been taught at home. And we need to let our children hear us pray. We need to let our, our children hear us pray from the heart. They don't need to hear us pray what, what I call a canned prayer. Do you know what I mean when I say a canned prayer? A canned prayer is something like, Dear Father in heaven, thank you for this day you've given us. Thank you for all the blessings. Lord, keep us from sin. Be with us. God, guard, and direct us. Christ's name, amen. It's something that's not really thought about. We just rattle it out. It's just words that we say. If we pray what I call a canned prayer, our children will learn to say canned prayers. They need to hear us pray from the heart. They need to hear us pray in such a way that they know that we believe in prayer so that when they get older and they're in their teenage years, those really tough years, they will be able to pray to God from their hearts and not just from their mouths. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6 says this. This is a motivation. You want your children to be able to pray. You want them to be able to do it well. Listen to this. Philippians 4 and verse 6 says, The King James says, Be careful for nothing. Now, the word careful there is a little bit confusing. The word there carries with it the idea of anxious. It carries with it the idea of stressing over something. So the Lord is saying, don't worry. Don't be anxious. Don't stress over things. But in everything, in prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. So what he says is this. Don't be stressed out by the world, but let your request be known to God in prayer. And then he tells us this. And he will give you the peace that passes all understanding. You see, there is a direct correlation, Paul says, between my prayer life and peace. Do you have peace in your life? What about your prayer life? What about your praying? I want my children to P-R-A-Y, pray, and I want them to pray well. And by that, I mean with humility and from the heart and so that they talk to God, so that they can have the peace that passes all understanding in their lives. Next, O-B-E-Y. We need to teach our children to obey. Have you ever thought about the fact that Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8 talks about Jesus, and it says that he obeyed the Father. He learned obedience. And have you ever considered the fact that if Jesus had sinned even one time in his life, if he had failed to obey the Father, then he couldn't have died on the cross for me. His death upon the cross would have meant nothing if he had sinned even one time. Now, why is that? If you think about the Old Testament and the Levitical priesthood, that is, the priest of the Old Testament, they would go and they would offer sacrifices for the people. But before they could sacrifice for the people, they first had to offer sacrifices for themselves. Why is that? Because they sinned. But to be a perfect sacrifice for sin, one had to be sinless. He had to be perfect. He had to be blameless. And the only way Jesus could be that perfect sacrifice is if he had obedience in the perfect sense. He never sinned. 
So where do children learn to obey God? Of course, the best place is from their mama and daddy. And I've really got to take this thing seriously. And young parents need to take this business of obeying seriously. Whose job is it? You ever think about this? Whose job is it to teach children to obey? Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. I want you to think about this because children can't even read yet. And yet, here's a command to them. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. I could come out and I could pick a little child out of the audience here, and I could say, this verse is written to you. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, but they can't even read it. And so, this verse is kind of reciprocal. Because who really receives that command? And the answer is, it's written to mom and daddy. The responsibility here is to teach your children to obey the parents. And so when I say no to my child, you know, some people when they say no, their child hears maybe because that's the way the parents hear it. When I say no, it has to mean no. When mama says no, that means no. For some people, when they say no, what that really means is I'll keep working on you enough until you change your mind and then you'll say yes, right? We can work through this, we can reason, and we can change your mind. That's not how it is. I want to teach my children obedience. If you don't teach your children how to obey you, don't be surprised when they don't obey their teachers. If you don't teach your children how to obey you, don't be surprised if they don't learn how to obey law enforcement officers. If you don't teach your children how to obey you, don't be surprised if they won't obey the elders in the church, and don't be surprised if they won't humbly obey the Almighty God. Here is the next one, the last one. The four-letter word, time, T-I-M-E. We've got to teach our children the value of time. You know, we use some interesting terminology about time. We talk about redeeming the time. The Bible says, Ephesians 5.16, redeeming the time. Literally, that means to, to buy it back. He says, because the days are evil. Not that days are really evil, but, but they're bad. It, the time just slips away from us. And he said, you've got to buy it back. You've got to take it back, is what the Lord is saying. You actively have to concentrate and work on getting your time back. Why? Because it slips away. Sometimes we use terminology like this. We'll say, he has time on his hands. It's an interesting phrase. We'll say, time flies. We'll say, he, he, he wastes time. We've got to instill in our children a sense of the value of time. We need to teach them that if you're responsible for doing something, you need to go ahead and do it, and that procrastination is not a good thing. You know, there's, there's a big joke in society about procrastinating that, that it's a good thing. It's not a good thing. We need to teach our children. Jesus said, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day, for the night cometh when no man can work. That is, time's running out. I've got work to do. I've got to stay on point. I've got to stay on task. There's a lot of things to do in the Lord's service, and I can't be distracted by all the other things going on around me. I've got to get with this. This is what James said. James chapter 4 and verse 13, James says, Go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow, we will go in such and such a city, buy and sell and get gain. That is, for the person who says, tomorrow I'm going to do this. I'm going to work. I got all these plans. For the person who's planning for tomorrow, he said, I want you to remember this. Whereas, you know not what shall be on the tomorrow. That is, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. 
You're planning to go on a business trip tomorrow. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. What is your life? It is even a vapor. What he's saying is, you might not have tomorrow. Life is very short. Life is a vapor. I remember when I was a kid in Charleston that the fair always came when it was cold. And so at night we would go to the fair and I remember that we would, you would breathe out and you would see this vapor and we used to see who could breathe out the furthest. But no matter how far you, you could breathe, it was only there for a few seconds and it was gone. That's the exact language that the Lord's using. Your life is like that. It's there for just a second and it's gone. And in the scheme of eternity, that is my life. And for those who are getting older, you know from experience. You look back and you think, man, I'm 70 years old, and it has gone just like that. Those who are younger, you kind of have to take James' word for it, but we have to teach our children the value of time. You know, only history is measured in centuries. The future is measured in the tick of a second, and especially that is true with reference to obeying the gospel. We need to teach our children the importance of time, Sometimes a young person will grow up in the church and they reach the age of accountability and maybe he knows the truth, she knows the truth, but they don't obey the gospel because they procrastinate. They put it off. I heard a story that was told from hell and it went like this. Of course, it's fictional. A couple of the devil's demons were propped up against some shovels where they'd been shoveling coal into the torment furnace of hell and they were mulling over how they would damn the soul of a particular individual. And one of the demons said to the others, he said, I got an idea. Let's convince this young man that there is no God. And one of the others said, that's not going to work. He grew up in the church. He's seen the evidence. He's looked around. That man will never be an atheist. He knows that God exists. That's not going to work. And another demon said, how about this? Let's convince him that there is no hell. And that when he dies, then we'll surprise him. And the other said, that's not going to work. He believes the Bible. He knows the testimony about what the Bible says about heaven, what it says about hell. He's never going to believe that. Then the third demon said this, I know what we do. He said, let's do this. Let's tell him there is a God. There is Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. Let's tell him that he died on the cross for their sins. Let's tell him you've got to be a Christian. Let's tell him that in order to go to heaven, you've got to be a part of the one church, and you do that by repenting and confessing and being baptized. And let's tell him that all of these things are factual and true. And let's tell him one more thing. Let's tell him, don't worry, because there's plenty of time to do it later. I need to teach my children the value of time and the importance of doing God's will while we have the opportunity. The time is today, and the time is now. I don't know when I first started learning four-letter words, but I'm glad that I grew up and ultimately learned some other four-letter words, and I hope that we will be able to teach them to our children and to our grandchildren. The most important thing in life is being a Christian. Nothing comes close to that. And you've got the opportunity to do that tonight while we are still on time side of eternity. If you're here this evening and you want to obey the gospel and become a child of God, a Christian, you do that by hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, and being baptized. If you want to do that tonight, we're ready to assist you.
If you're here this evening as a Christian and you desire the prayers of your brethren on your behalf, we would be delighted and honored to go to God and do that. Tonight, if you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, we invite you to come as together we stand and sing the invitation song.